Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This is Auntie Vice, and today I am here with Meg Ellison, writer extraordinaire, author of the Road to Nowhere series. If you follow me on Twitter, you know I'm an enormous fan and recommend her works all the time. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. This is wonderful. You have done uh, one of the things that most people fantasize about, which is become the great American writer. Did you always want to write? It is the only job I ever really wanted to have. I have fantasized about being a writer since like kindergarten. I briefly wanted to be an opera singer, but uh, I've always wanted to write books. So I feel exceedingly lucky that this is my job, which is not to say I didn't work for it. I worked my ass off, but it also takes luck. Speaking of working your ass off for it. So you were a high school dropout and then you ended up at UC Berkeley. So for all of my Ritalin addicted former AP kids who didn't go to Berkeley, can you explain how that happened? Yeah, so there is a magic middle step called community colleges, and uh, it made a huge difference in my life. I went to a great community college called Mount San Jacinto in Southern California, and it is an excellent space to figure out what you actually want to do and what you're good at without incurring thousands of dollars in debt. So the time that I spent in community college made me a better student, helped me refine my habits, helped me refine my interests. I had real one-on-one time with great professors, you know, PhDs, people who could have taught at any level, but they loved community college teaching. I got to publish my first nonfiction articles there. I got to publish fiction there. And I, I got to hammer my intellect into a shape that would take me places that it wouldn't have taken me before. I cannot say enough good things, especially about California community colleges, which I have to say can be entirely paid for on the taxpayer dime. If you can show that you have need, there are a million things. There's the Board of Governors waiter, there's the Cal Grant, there's the Pell Grant. I went to community college essentially for free, though I had to work the whole time I was there, and it made a huge difference in my life. I will second that. I am a big supporter of the community college system out here in California. I will also put out there, if you are a veteran and you have even 0% disability ranking, you can go for free, as can your children which is an amazing opportunity. So yes, I am, I am the biggest supporter of getting your first few years out um, at, a, at a community college rather than a four-year. It oh, yeah. makes so much more sense. And it made it so that when I got to Berkeley, I really appreciated a lot of things I wouldn't have even recognized when I saw them if I had gone when I was like 20 years old. So yeah, do that. Yeah. Yeah, no, big, big fan of it. So uh, a lot of your writing focuses and incorporates queer characters, which is for, informed by your life. Did you set out to be an author that really brought queer characters to the forward, or is it just these represented more of the kind of people you know? It's both. So I, I am a gay, I am a gay, I am a queer. So all of my friends are queer. Like I haven't seen a straight person in seven days. So it represents the world as I know it. And also many of my favorite books, especially in post-apocalyptic science fiction, but all over the place, have an assumption of a heteronormative lifestyle and a really specific unspoken moral code around sex and sexuality. And I loved those books. And I still thought to myself, why are these people so needlessly chaste? Why are these people so needlessly monogamous? Why are these people so regimentedly straight when it seems like their affections go in all different directions. So yeah, it's both. I did it on purpose and I did it because it's how life actually is. We have an ongoing discussion on this show about Star Trek and Star Trek is one of those futuristic novels where you actually have queer characters, non-hetero characters. Did that, are you a Star Trek fan? Did that inform I'm a any huge lifelong Star Trek fan? It absolutely informs my work. I was actually watching the first episode of DS9 last night because my girlfriend's wife has never seen it before. 
and talking about how a lot of people interpret Gen Z attacks and the trill in general as a trans narrative. And like, it's not as open as it could be. Star Trek has not always had the courage that it should have had, but it is at least there in the text for people who are looking for it. And you've watched Picard, I'm assuming. Oh, yes. Okay. So the first season, they deal with AI life forms. And you recently have a story out in Best Lesbian Erotica, Volume 6, out by Please Press. And you have uh, cyborg life in there. Um, I do. <laughs> what, was that informed by Picard? Because it's written around the time the first season came out? Or was it just another take on AI and, and how in future? <laughs> That's a really interesting question. I don't think that I was directly inspired by Picard, but I'm always thinking about transhumanism. I'm always examining the question of like, what makes us people? And at what point have we changed so much that we're not people anymore? And I always think of Battlestar Galactica, the reboot series, which I deeply love. And the idea that Cylons are created by humans and so close to humans that we're capable of interbreeding, even though they're not technically organic. And how much that series embraced the weirdness of that sexuality. So I would say that I'm inspired by a lot of feast of science fiction, uh, of which Picard is only a small part. Yeah. So the other thing with the Road to Nowhere series is you very explicitly incorporate trans narratives, which is very different than most even lesbian futuristic and post-apocalyptic fiction. Was that again, a, a reaction to the stuff that you had read and leaving out of those narratives? Or was it just you knew a lot of trans folks and this made sense in the... Uh, again, it is both. I have a lot of trans people in my life and I am lucky and honored to have them in my life. And I have gotten to re-examine my own relationship to gender because of what I've learned from them in ways that I wouldn't have otherwise, even with some educational background in sexuality and gender. So uh, the other thing I was going to say is if you are writing about gender and there's been a rash of these books recently, like all the men die, all the women fall asleep, all the men have a specific disease, it, you're ignoring the broadside of a barn. If you don't consider trans people in your narrative, they're not a footnote. They are the key to the door of gender. They will make you actually think about gender beyond uh, an absolutely absurd binary that doesn't serve anybody or anybody's story. I've also, I've been very privileged in my journey as a writer to get to know trans authors and to see, I am very proud of my work and I, I stand by it. I wouldn't change a thing, but I am humbled and dwarfed by the talent of trans writers who've taken on the same subjects with their own experience. I recently read Manhunt by Gretchen Felker Martin, who is an incredible trans writer and wrote the most visceral and just absolutely took me apart gender plague novel that I've ever read in my life. So if you, if you are listening to this and you've read my book, you need Gretchen's book. Gretchen's book is better than mine. When you were writing, one of the things as, as writers, when we write characters that are not steeped in our own identities and our own experiences, did you seek out uh, beta readers and commentary from people who were in these different identities as you wrote? Or did you rely on your own talent as a writer to create the voice and go to the publisher with that? I very much believe in sensitivity readers. I very much believe in paying sensitivity readers and actually taking their advice and never using them as a shield. Uh, so I am, I'm privileged enough to have people in my life who I can offer some money to and say, can you read this as a non-binary person? Can you read this as a trans mask? Can you read this as a trans woman? So I was lucky to get that help and it did reshape my narrative and it did sharpen the work and make it more specific than I could have done with my own experience. There's also, there's an outfit called Writing the Other that offers mm -hmm. classes specifically for this if you're not lucky enough to have those people in your life that I've taught classes for before on uh, how to write fat characters, which has been an exhilarating experience. And I love talking to people who are thinking about this for the first time. It's like watching a child be born. It is. So, when be, and again, fat characters, people struggle with quite a bit. And oh, yeah. so when you're reading other people's work, where do you find the biggest uh, discrepancies between how they write a fat character and actually living as a fat girl? Oh, gosh, there's so many things. I was actually just writing about this. There are some really basic tropes that a lot of writers fall into that People will use numbers to indicate that someone is very fat. They'll give a, a, a weight that they consider unthinkable or unwieldy. And, you know, you'll be reading it as a person and say, you know, that's 100 pounds less than I weigh. And this person can't walk. And that's not to say there aren't disabilities where a person at that weight couldn't walk. But that weight alone is not right. a cause of immobility. 
So those always just like spin me super bad. Like, why did you include this number? The character's not getting on a trampoline. It's irrelevant. And moreover, it's inaccurate. So that's a hard one. And also like the stock bat characters, like the lovelorn, terribly lonely fat woman. I don't know a fat girl who doesn't have to beat off suitors with a bat, first of all. Or the lonely incel neckbeard gamer guy. Every guy I know who fits that description has a wife and a girlfriend and a, a whole gaming group of people you could probably sleep with if you wanted to. So it's it is a strange disconnect because I know that everybody who writes these stories knows these people. Mm-hmm. They have fat people in their life who are married, who are partnered, who are successful, who are gymnasts, who are fighters, who are painters, and they they still write these utterly stock characters from some 1930s comic strip. Like they can't connect reality to to fiction, and it's it's a struggle. Which is one of the reasons that I write what I do and I teach the classes that I do. Well, and one of the things is in science fiction, especially, they use weight and fat to indicate negative characteristics, right? Jabba the Hutt is the classic. Sure. Or Baron Harkonnen uh, from Mm. Dune, which we just saw executed in a fucking fat suit for the love of Christ. Like there aren't fat people you could have put in that role. Yeah. And it's used to indicate that your society is somehow decadent or that in fantasy that you are the the grubby, uh, avaricious, uh, greedy, you know, potentate, mayor of the town, bad king. It's Fatness is not a shorthand for laziness or for poor character or for poor self-control. And if it's one thing I could teach to other writers, it would be that. Tell me who the character is. Do not expect the body to do the work for you. That's fantastic. You also just uh, won a major award for The Pill, uh, which focuses around fatness and fat characters. And I have to say, reading it, it was a very visceral experience going through the (laughs) the entire thing. I I get that a lot, yeah. Yeah, well, down to the fact that the father's name is Carl, which is my father's name, and the well, and the skinny woman, uh, the the star is Amy Blanton, and that's my last name. And my mom and all of her sisters are that angular, flat body, with, all with the oh. eating disorders. And it was like oh, you knew wow. my life. It, it, oh wow! <laughs> right, the the parallel. And I fought my mother the whole life because she lives. She's tried every diet, as does the mother in this. And mm-hmm. um, I am a great disappointment because I am fat. Oh, and geez, I'm sorry. No, no, it was it was amazing to see that. It was the first time I've ever. I'm like, this is my life down to my names in my life <laughs> on the page. It's incredible. Uh, uh-huh. But in that, you talk about fat characters being portrayed as decadent and such. So in that story, the the fat character who chooses to remain fat is put into this lush and decadent place towards towards the middle of the story and so were you purposely drawing the the tropes in and using it as was that the yeah yeah I was I was doing the trope and I was trying to think like if there was a place where the last few fat people on earth were sort of corralled who would seek them out and why and I think people would seek us out because we symbolized to them that kind of excess or that kind of taboo of the unruly body or that kind of embodiment of motherhood or of plenty or of an enfolding embrace so i was trying to think like what if the fat fetish was a place you could go to what would it be like and then getting to really examine for that character what it meant to her what parts of it she might be able to enjoy what parts of it she would react against which is i think a journey that every fat person has to go on examining examining the shape of people's desire for you and trying to decide whether or not it's enough and so you've done that in your own relationships is oh, figuring yeah. out oh, yeah. how do you go about figuring out whether they want you just because of your body or for something? That is a whole journey. It is, I think for a lot of people, when you're young, no matter what your body is like, it is enough to be wanted for your body because you don't have any experience. And because the body burns so hot in your teens and twenties, that you don't care if you have a soul or a brain, you have a lot of nerve endings that need constant attention. (laughs) And that is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with it. As I've gotten older, I have learned how to discern what someone values about me by how they treat me and the quality of our interactions. And if I get the sense that someone can't keep their hands off me, that is a fun time for like six weeks. (laughs) But at some point you need to have conversations and you need to know that someone will show up for you when it's dangerous or inconvenient or uncomfortable. And 
someone who is only into your body will rarely also do those other things. And it's, it is the work of a lifetime to know yourself in any whole or meaningful way and and work of another lifetime to hope that somebody else does too. And that's true no matter what you look like. And I think that being fat got me to confront it maybe earlier, maybe sooner than many folks would have, but it's been exceedingly rewarding. I I would agree again. So dating in the queer world as a fat woman is is a whole nother experience. How has it changed your interactions in the lesbian community and in the queer world in general versus what you think it might've been like, had you been, you know, thin or, you know, otherwise bodied. There are a lot of women who love women's faces that I have found myself welcoming to varying degrees, but it's, it's an intersectional problem. It's not always entirely readable to me. So when I lived in the San Francisco Bay area, I got occasional invitations to aid an all girl sex party. And it was an inclusive space. It was not only lesbians. It was not only cis women. And uh, I was excited to be invited. And then when I got there, I realized that the crowd skewed really young. And uh, there was really a body type in effect. And that was surprising to me. Not that the San Francisco Bay Area is particularly good about body acceptance. It's not. It's illegal to be fat on the streets there. <laughs> but in the queer community, especially in, uh, in queer women of color, I had come to expect something very different. And that particular event was mostly white and mostly very thin. So that kind of threw me for a loop because we think as queer women that women are so much less shallow than men and they're not all hung up on body types and that is not at all true we are all steeped in the exact same fat phobic culture and you will see it no matter where you go uh and that i find is mostly unspoken like there is a certain pattern when you meet somebody and you look at all the pictures of her ex-girlfriends and you're like oh i'm I'm the first fat girl you've dated let's talk about that but in my experience it was much more likely that i would have spoken to my face the uh judgment and bias against by women, uh, especially by women who are known to be married to or have relationships with men, or the very spoken, very outspoken bias against uh, women who love women who have had partners who are trans women. And that is becoming a militarized zone and uh, it's something that people will openly get in your face about. So as much as I think I have an experience of body culture among the queers that is biased against fats, the other biases I encountered were much more present and much more volatile. And the the biphobia that exists in the <sighs> in queer women, I think, is probably the strongest of any group I've ever experienced. Yeah, and- yeah, it's rough. I mean, I don't know. I don't have a bi man's experience, and I know that they have their mm-hmm. own issues with that. But there's there is, I think, a pervasive bias against bisexual people uh, from the queer community where it is believed that if you can pass a straight, you will seize that as an opportunity and use your bisexuality to pass a straight. And then people will use your dating history as proof against you that you're not really queer or not queer enough when it's just a fucking numbers game. Mm -hmm. Like as a bi woman, I get 10 times more interest from men. I meet 10 times more men who are attracted to women than I do women who are attracted to women. And then of that 10% of women who are attracted to women who I do meet, half of them won't date me because I'm bi. Uh huh. And another number are uh, not interested in dating someone who is non-monogamous or have some other philosophical argument with how I do live or have lived my life. So that leaves like three women for every pool of 100 people. So when I show my dating history, someone says, oh, you mostly date men. That's not because I'm mostly attracted to men. That's because men are mostly what's available to me. Well, and men are easy. I have Gosh, to I say know. dating and hooking up with men is a hundred times easier than dating. Oh yeah. 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 Mm. Um, It is nothing at all to fuck 200 men a year. And there's, there is no way I I could put up those numbers with women. It is not possible. Yeah. Yeah. Especially being bi, because the other thing I've run into is there's, there's women who are convinced that if you're non-monogamous and bi, that they're going to have to put up with a straight man. And there's plenty of women who love women who have no interest in having a heterosexual man anywhere near that relationship. I completely get it. And I understand the bias and I, I wish them well with that, but there's usually at least one in my orbit, although I, I prefer not to date straight men. They do happen. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it's, you know, I, I have a running joke that dating is, you can equate each gender you date to, to video games and right. So you get gay men and their dating life is like Pac-Man because they're chasing around these little white gobs and being chased by everybody that ghosted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> by the okay. time it, it gets to dating trans women, it's like Skyrim. You got to put in like 300 hours just to get the basics of it and understand how it works. <laughs> I agree. I agree with cabbage. <laughs> and then, um, Straight men are like the training section of any video game because you can never die. You can just try it over and over and over again. And they're, there's, they're in every game, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. That is quite true. Yeah. No, dating, dating straight men is just statistically easier. Um, and, you know, I've never once been on a date with a straight man where he's asked me, am I the first straight man that you've dated? And do we need to have a conversation about what that means? It does not happen. The barrier to entry is a line painted on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, yeah. all you have to do is say yes. And you've, yeah. you've got it taken care You're of. You're in. Yeah. And they decided before they showed up. So, yeah. 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 Have you found dating different genders react differently to body size? Definitely, yes. I have noticed that people who have a male experience and a male-bodied experience in life feel as though they have every right to their preferences and they don't apologize for them. And it's just a condition of their attraction. and There's nothing you can do about it. And people who have a mostly feminized or female-bodied experience have examined their relationship to it, if nothing else, although they may still defend their preferences as just a preference and having nothing to do with beauty norms or racism or any of that. But they will at least pay lift service to the idea that you are more than your body. When it came to examining your own biases and mm-hmm. and how you've been imbued, you know, because we're all exposed to the same, you know, fat-phobic culture. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How'd you go about unlearning some of that and coming to come to ex- uh, some level of acceptance of your own body? A lot of it was reading. I, I read some really great books that pushed me in the right direction that helped me understand how those norms developed and who they serve and what they're for. I read this great book called Fearing the Black Body mm-hmm. that talks about the construction of fat phobia and how it is highly racial in nature and like has roots in them deep parts of the world psyche not just the american psyche and that was revolutionary for me i read a lot of feminist theory at a young age i would say that my radicalizing text was our bodies ourselves which i had a copy of when i was like 10 years old which don't give your kids second wave feminism at 10 but you know it helped me with a lot of things putting the right books into my own path and 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 really doing the work with them helped a lot and i also this was such a simplistic thing but i always recommend it to fat people who are trying to free the mind as you follow people on Instagram whose bodies are like yours who like themselves. You watch how they dress themselves and you watch how they treat themselves and how they travel and how they do their makeup. And it is as simple as normalizing your body to yourself and watching somebody be joyful in it. I I grew up watching so many fat women crucifying themselves and doing nothing else you find wearing big shapeless clothes and feeling like they they weren't allowed to live until they had lost enough weight or declining invitations or refusing to to get on an airplane or whatever it is they had to say no to because it was how they showed that they were sorry for being fed finding counter examples to that of people who had modeling contracts and pretty clothes and went to parties and you know got whatever they wanted out of life was revolutionary (laughs) So, uh, it got, it's, it's constant work and it's ongoing. It's not as if, you know, I'm enlightened and I never have those feelings anymore. You have to keep doing it. You have to keep reading good books. Uh, I read, you have the right to remain fat by Virgie Tovar. And, uh, and that was a really good one. And I read Jennifer Weiner a ton as a teenager. And she was the first novelist I saw who wrote fat girl characters who got to kiss boys on the beach and like have intriguing lives and get into trouble and deal with sexual assault. And she's a fantastic writer and she makes it part of the everyday and the slice of life of her books. Yeah. Seek out fat people who can show you how to live, follow them and and start making them your model rather than adapting what a thin person says you can do. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what the Fat Chicks on Top Instagram account is dedicated to. We follow all sorts of fat influencers because it makes a difference. And you see it yourself- so does. Well, and to see yourself as desirable makes a huge difference because fat girls as sexy is not there's a very weird relationship to fat and sex in, in books oh, yeah. and in media. Who do you think gets it right? So we're we talking about 
people creating art about the desirability of the fat body or people who are an example of the desirability um, of the fat people, body? People, characters and roles that are written um, or, or art that's created that really gets oh, it sure. right when it comes to the fat body being desirable for more than just its voluptuous roles. There we go. Uh, I loved Dietland by Saray Walker. It's about like the destruction of diet culture and the liberation of this one character whose name is Plum. Uh, there was a TV show adaptation of it that I, I had several issues with, but it tried real hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that actress and that character was presented in a very humanizing and yet desirable light. And the book does a way better job of it. I love Dumplin for the same reason. Uh, Dumplin, I thought, presented a young adult character mm-hmm. who was very pretty and very desirable and got what you want that out of life. The book is fantastic. It's uh, Julie Murphy wonderful author uh, also great fat person to follow on instagram uh, i just recently read one to watch by kate stamen london it's a romance novel and it's what if the bachelorette the tv show what if the bachelorette was fat and it is so good and she writes such a complex combination of this is how this character is fetishized in media and in interpersonal interactions. And also this is how desirable she is, how kind she is, how compassionate she is, how funny she is. This is why everybody is so drawn to her. And also she's hot as hell. And the descriptions of how they dress her for the show and how she dresses herself are just chef's kiss incredible. She's also, she's a big shoe person. I'm not a big shoe person, but if you like shoe stories, she's got you covered. There was uh, another one that was kind of like that. It was like Cinderella as a reality show, but also with a fat main character. I think it's called If the Shoe Fits, but I can't remember who the author is. That was another great example of a highly desirable fat girl character and how she gets to live the entire Cinderella story and gets what she wants in the end and doesn't sacrifice anything and doesn't settle for less because she has to because nobody likes fat girls I can't get enough of those books I'm always looking for recommendations on them especially uh, the ones with a happy ending right to just and they don't have to get thin to have the happy ending never I never want to read another weight loss uh, narrative if that's what it takes to be happy. Yeah. No, a ton of people had re- recommended the show Brittany Runs a Marathon to me. And I was no. so, I was so upset. They're like, this is a great portrayal of a fat girl. And it, it made me viscerally angry then with those people who had recommended it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You have to have a conversation with those people. Yeah. Uh, the valorization of weight loss was so deep in the media that I grew up on. Like, I grew up watching Oprah drag her fucking wagon of lard onto the stage or like, you know, the, the, the endless ta- uh, tabloid front pages of who got fat and who's not fat anymore, or even speculating on the weight fluctuations for people who are barely adults. Like I, I lived mm-hmm. through the, the godforsaken midriff 2000s and, you know, Britney Spears would go up 10 pounds or down 10 pounds and, and people would lose their minds over it. I don't know how she survived that. I'm shocked she yeah. came through. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the pressure is incredible. One of the, the, representation and i know you were a melissa mccarthy fan and you just yeah. you did a great blog post on on her recent movie uh, which i'm now dying to see but she did one of the the first real mainstream sitcom characters in mike and molly and it definitely evolved how they represented fat relationships but in general what did you think of the series and and her representation in there i find melissa mccarthy uh sometimes very satisfying because I love the way she inhabits her body and I love how unapologetic she is how she's a great combination of smart and funny and she never makes any excuses for her sexuality or acts as if she shouldn't have it but she's also a favorite of people who write physical comedy who think it is funny to watch fat people to struggle Uh, I don't love that and I don't love that she entertains that and at the same time I know that she has to do what she has to do to make a living and that is often what the role calls for so you know, some love, some less than love. Uh, I think about A.D. Bryant and uh, the the work that she's mm-hmm. taken on and how she's, it looks like she's been able to be a little bit more choosy, maybe because she gets to run because, you know, Melissa McCarthy walked. I think about Shrill and that show is fucking amazing. And I, I want to see more of stories where the fat girl has a steady boyfriend who seems like he's good enough and she kicks him the fuck out of her house. <laughs> Oh, that was beautiful. The only thing, the only bad thing I have to say about Shrill is that I want all of that character's clothes and they are all custom made by the costume department because there was nothing fabulous enough on the rack to dress her in. That is a problem I would like to see solved. 
Yes. Well, and speaking of which, you do have your eShakti recommendation. And all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what they, and, and you are not the first person on the show to recommend eShakti for clothing. So what makes it better than, than most clothing options out there? I'm never going back. Uh, about 90% of my closet at this point is eShakti. And the real difference is there's a lot of cheap, fast fashion for plus sizes, and the clothes are not durable. Ishakti's clothes are very well-made and exceedingly durable. I have dresses from them I've been wearing for seven or eight years now that still look great on me and great on anybody. The difference between clothes kind of fitting you because you're about a size 22 or 24 and getting clothes made to your actual measurements cannot be overstated. In this case, for Ishakti, it's like a $10 upcharge for them to take your measurements and make them for your measurements. The way that I feel in these clothes, the way that they fit my body like no clothes ever have, the way that people notice me and take in what I'm wearing is it's orders of magnitude different than anything I had experienced before. It is, it is as if I have found a way to buy thin privilege. <laughs> so not quite thin privilege, but man, it's close. And it, it makes people... There's no hiding the fact that I'm fat. There's no getting anybody to overlook it, especially if their bias is is significant. But the expectation that a biased person has that a fat person cannot dress themselves, that we are inherently slovenly, that we are inherently shapeless or sexless, I can step on that with my big black fucking boot the minute they see me in one of these killer outfits. I am never going back. And you show it in your headshots and all of that beautiful, beautiful clothing in, in your, your public shots. You talk about being noticed. And that's one thing when you're bigger, it you move differently through the world. Oh, so yeah. what is it like to go out, especially in, you know, people think San Francisco is more accepting, but it, it's really not. Uh, it's a real mixed bag. Yeah. Yeah. What is it like to go out in, in, you know, these areas and you were from Southern California and God knows LA it's. Mm, awful absolutely not. if you're yeah. if you're you know even normal body weight in LA mm -hmm. how does how do people react to you what is your experience or do you just block it out anymore I don't block it out because I discovered during the pandemic uh, that I'm an extrovert and I'm still coping with this but I I really desire interaction with strangers I don't need their approval but I need to be seen I know that about myself now I had like a little mini tantrum about three weeks into lockdown because I realized that I had an eye fucked a stranger in days <laughs> killing me. I love being seen. I love being noticed. And I, I love that almost everywhere I go dressing like I do, I get compliments and they range from the, the pure admiration of someone saying, gosh, your dress has pockets and just being very pleased to see it and wanting to know where I got it to the compliments and admiration of other fat people who immediately want to know where did you get it? And everybody knows he's shocked. There's like five mm -hmm. places to buy clothes. We just trade them around in a circle to, I can see the shock on someone's face because it's the first time maybe in their life that they open their mouth to give a compliment to a fat person and it's not gosh you have such a pretty face or that outfit is so flattering on you they have gotten past that point over the hump into i love your style or that dress makes you look incredible or that is your color or you know i couldn't walk past you without saying x i want that every goddamn day i don't care how much shock is in your voice i want you to enjoy that shock and it, it is one of the great pleasures of my life that everywhere i go some version of that happens have you always been like that? Or is it something you've become more comfortable with as you've gotten older? I had to learn that I was not like that at all. I went through, I think, a similar adolescence to a lot of fat people, especially fat queer people, where I tried to hide. I tried to look like everybody else, which is not possible. And I went through, you know, a deep goth period because it was at least something I could adhere to style-wise that was always available to me. God knows they will sell a fat person anything in black. I tried to hide my shape. I tried to... I don't know why I did this. I wanted to be seen as someone, you know, with a waist and with tips. And I, I, I would turn myself into the shape of an egg rather than admit what my actual contours were. And it made me miserable. Jeans and t-shirts made me want to fucking kill myself. And that's cool if that's what you like to wear. Rock it, be you. But it was not me. Mm -hmm. I think of dresses as the language my body speaks. And they are really all I ever wanted. But I had to give myself permission to be seen that way and to frankly be girl enough there's a whole battle toward winning femininity especially if you grow up fat 
once I had that permission, once I knew what I wanted, once I understood the language that my body spoke, once I gave myself permission to be seen and be wanted that way, it's like I became fluent and I moved into it. But I didn't have that figured out until it was damn near 30. Well, and you talk about, you know, getting comfortable with femininity. And as a queer woman, that can be, that's a big decision because we still have, we still divide it into butch and femme and all of Mm -hmm. that. How did you come to accept the the feminine aspects of yourself? It's been it's been a struggle. There is a lot of expectation of butchness in fat women. There's a lot of expectation of strength and of being the mom friend or being the backup friend who will go out with you when everyone else has said no. And I have moments where I feel quite butch, where I feel my own masculinity, where I find the dick space in my brain, like all of that's there. There's also, I think, an expectation for the performance of femininity from fat women that you pay your rent in the world by at least being very pretty and femming it up and reminding somebody of your mother or your ideal trad wife or you pay homage to the hourglass that God gave you. And I don't love that either. So, you know, every couple of years, I shave one side of my head and I, I go back to my docs and I think real hard about how I present myself in the world and whether I'm doing that for other people's edification or for my own. But the truth is, I felt that femininity was something I was restricted from in the early parts of my life because I was queer, because I was fat, because I honestly, I don't even believe in pretty anymore. I think pretty is a set of skills and a bunch of rules based on racism, but because I did not have the skills of pretty that I sort of defaulted into the, there's a a territory of androgyny that belongs specifically to fat people because we're desexualized. So I defaulted into fat androgyny and into butchness because I didn't believe I was worthy of femininity. And God, that's like a whole essay on gender I could get into because fat complicates gender. Everything complicates gender and fat complicates everything. It does. It does. So along with that comes feeling desirable. When mm-hmm. did you start feeling your that you were actually desirable and desirable to yourself, not just others? I experienced the imposition of desire. Like before I hit puberty, mm-hmm. I like a lot of people who grow up AFAB, I started experiencing catcalling when I was like nine years old. And, and the... <sighs> the opportunistic uh, attention of men who prey on children was uh, and understood. I understood it as a fact of life. So I didn't trust that for a long time. It did not feel like the kind of desire that I wanted to experience. It felt like consumption and I did not want to be consumed. So I had to decouple my understanding of desire from that first before I even learned what I wanted from it. And being understanding in high school that I was queer and beginning to decouple the idea of sex from PIV and you just let a boy do what he wants to you and for God's sake discovering queer sex and discovering foreplay and and understanding what desire was actually for was revolutionary I I think the gods that I grew up mostly fucking girls And that I came to understand what desire was good for and what it meant in my body and learning to, there is something about being in a relationship with somebody who is your own gender. That's like falling into a mirror. You start to learn how to be desirable to yourself and how to desire yourself because you're with someone who's like you. And that was also marvelously important to the the building of my psyche at a young age. So I think that I came into adulthood. And when I say adulthood, I mean Saturn return. I mean, I wasn't really an adult till I was like 27 Mm -hmm. (laughs) armed with all of that as my experience rather than a sex negative point of view that I inherited through religious trauma or, you know, all the other things people get their, their views on sex from. And and for that, I am truly grateful. Bring up learning about queer sex, you know, at a, at a, in a high school, you know, at an Mm -hmm. appropriate age. Because now we have the don't say gay bill in Florida and fuck Ron DeSantis. Um, Yeah, fuck DeSantis. Right. And and just because you don't say gay doesn't mean we're not there. Right. So I'm sure you didn't grow up hearing about bisexuality and sex ed. Right. I absolutely did not. (laughs) Right. Let alone being gay. But, you know, people don't 
bisexuality is not something we've ever com- conquered in 9 through 12 sex ed. So where did you learn about it? I was a big nerd and I read a lot of uh, classic literature that sort of skated around it in very florid language, but still told me what was up. So like I was a big Virginia Woolf fan. Uh, I read Colette. I read Anais Nin. I read Erica Jong. I read a lot of queer feminist texts where people were like, yeah, yeah, I'm married to this dude, but also I'm terribly in love with my best friend and I don't know what to do with that feeling. I also, I, I was reading Dan Savage as a teenager, which, you know, he's a problematic dude and, and biphobic as hell. And I, I have yeah. many things to say about him, but he at least kicked the door open for a lot of us and was like, well, yes, I guess bisexuals do exist. And that was something. Um, and there were a handful of bisexual role models in the culture at that point who uh, I very much looked up to. And, you know, it was... I went to high school in the late 90s, so it was kind of the heyday of the fashion bisexual. It was, you know, I, I sometimes I get super drunk and make out with girls, and uh, and that may or may not be a way to get attention or a legitimate and authentic representation of my sexuality. So it was at least for me a thing that had a name. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't, I wasn't in a place where you couldn't say gay. I was in a place where you could certainly get the shit kicked out of you for saying it too often. <laughs> And uh, and thank God for books, because the books were there for, for everything. I'm really glad that I could read Virginia Woolf and Juna Barnes and put things together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and thank God for queer bookstores. Seriously. I mean, I, I, I'm a few years older than you, but yeah, the, the back parts of queer bookstores is where I learned about it, too, and discovered leather dykes and... Oh, yeah fucking uh, pat khalifa writing and oh yeah have you read uh have you read last night at telegraph club by melinda lowe yes so So i love she described like uh, a woman coming out or, or learning that she was a lesbian in chinatown in the 50s like during the red scare by finding those lesbian dime novels on a whirly gig in a drugstore and being terrified that someone might see her reading it and not even being able to buy it and take it home but reading it in the goddamn store <laughs> and I, I i thought about how those books have been utterly necessary utterly vital to the queer community since you know since our grandparents were kids yeah, yeah, and I think that's especially for those of us who are on the more nerdy end of things. That's oh, yeah. how we learned about this stuff, right? <laughs> that's absolutely yes. <laughs> I also I read a ton of queer fan fiction when I was a kid. You know, once the internet became a thing, uh, there was somebody who was writing a crossover that was uh, Agent Scully from the X Files mm-hmm. who at at the FBI library ran into Clarice Starling and they had this long torrid affair and my God, how I loved it. I wish oh, I could find fan- that writer now and send them some money. Oh, that's fantastic. I, <laughs> I, I can totally picture it too. Right. Yeah. They're at the FBI at the same time. They would have liked each other. Yeah. Yeah. And that would have been a very hot, sexy. Uh, oh yes. Oh, yes. Although I don't think Jodie Foster would have ever agreed to do that one on film. Um, Probably not. <laughs> so, you know, you're you're a writer. You're you're very aware of what's going on in the writing world. What do you think is missing from queer representation in writing right now? Anything sex. or have we sex? God, sex. Yeah, it drives me crazy. Uh, I love science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Those are my my favorites. My playgrounds, the place where I make my living, and where I spend all my time. And I will say that queers are crushing it in every category i mean we're winning all the awards we're getting all the big bestsellers we're landing huge contracts but the markets that publish short fiction all the short stories all the poems very few of them will accept sexually explicit material and many of the queer science fiction and fantasy books that i love most sort of gloss over the actual sex a lot there's a lot of writers who this is not true for i'm not calling everybody out Mm -hmm. but i I want to see more fucking on the actual page gretchen felker martin's book the one that i mentioned Mm -hmm. in the beginning of this has real sex in it between queer people between trans people between people who are barely surviving because people still fuck under the circumstances that story that i sold to best lesbian erotica Mm -hmm. which i'm very proud of had too much sex in it to go into any science fiction journal yeah and that's one of the things I find most hypocritical about genre fiction is it is difficult to sell a book 
that has fun consensual sex between two adults and it is not at all difficult to sell a book that has several scenes of rape and i would love to see i mean everybody even the straights everybody should just have more consensual logical fucking in their books and I do think that that's missing from from most genres. And you're right. It's incredibly hard to sell a book with any explicit sex scene, especially queer sex. Like they're oh, yeah. selling straight sex, but then they're trying to sell queer sex as a thing. And there are so many publishers who won't touch it. Won't touch it. I, one of the things I love to point out to people is that was not true for bestsellers 20, 30 years ago. Like yeah. I read Jaws when I was a kid because I really wanted to, re- I love books about the ocean. I love the movie. And I was like, I bet the book is great. And the book is great. And also Hooper fucks Brody's wife, like a week before they get on the boat. It is extremely explicit. It is completely on the page and Brody figures it out while they're on the boat and wants to kill him. There's a whole subplot there that didn't end up in the Spielberg film. And that's fine. But it was a massive blockbusting bestseller, and it had real sex in it. Those books once existed. Yeah, yeah, and and they didn't have to go in, you know, the back section of a bookstore, you know, with a parental it was, warning. Yeah, it used to be expected if you're writing books for adults, then there will be sex in them because that's what adults do, and that that expectation seems to have waned. And I know there's a lot of reasons why, and there's obscenity law, and there's FOSTA SESTA, and there's everybody's moral panic that we're somehow trafficking minors because we wrote a story about grownups fucking each other but like we got to get past it we have to yeah yeah so speaking of of stuff for minors you just you have a young fiction young adult uh novel out what made so you know the most of your work i'm familiar with is much more adult and much more geared for the 18 plus crowd what made you want to conquer young adult fiction Young adult is compelling to me because it was important to me when I was that age. I I was already reading adult fiction as a kid, but I I very badly wanted to see myself reflected back to me. And, you know, I'm not a small island cop on a boat trying to kill a murderous great white shark, it turns out. And I wanted to find books about kids who were as poor as me. And there just weren't any. Like when I wrote at the comps for my book, Find Layla, they were 20, 30 years out of date because there just aren't enough books about kids in extreme poverty. You know, a lot of people like to write wish fulfillment stuff, you know, kids who have very rich parents who conveniently die and leave you a bunch of money. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wrote Fine Layla for kids who grew up like me, who don't have a lot of resources, who have to do the work of being an adult way before they're legally an adult. And in many ways, I wrote Layla as an exorcism. I, I wanted to write out some of the things that happened to me as a kid so that they couldn't haunt my house anymore. And damn, is that effective? Yeah, that's got to be one of the strongest benefits of being an author is you can get it all out on the page and out of your head. Um, yep. That's inc- incredibly powerful. If people want to find you, if they want to buy your works, if they want to follow you, where do they go? Please follow my Instagram where I'm extremely hot and all my clothes can be found for a reasonable price. Uh, I'm Megan Elison on Instagram because there's some Mormon kid who's got my name. I'm Meg Elison on Twitter and my website is MegElison.com. I've always got new work coming out. I'm always publishing and I'm I'm pretty fun on Twitter. I have to say I, I, I do minimum shit posts and I do the Wordle every day. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Hi, this is Antivice from Fat Chicks on Top. I want to take a minute and talk about Newsly. Newsly is an all-in-one audio super app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles on the most trending topics at any given moment and reads them in a natural human voice. For the first time ever, the entire internet has become listenable all in one place. This is great for accessibility needs as well as people who would rather listen than scroll. Explore trending podcasts from 50 countries. Our podcast, Fat Chicks on Top, is there too. You can download Newsly for free from www.newsly.me and use the promo code FC0T, one month free premium subscription. And now, a moment of gratitude. I am most grateful at this moment that when the time came that I needed to leave the West Coast and get out of my marriage and make a major change in my life, that I had 
not one, but several offers from people who love me most to come and stay with them, to move into their house temporarily or permanently, to, from people who truly adore me and want what's best for me and make space in their lives for me on an ongoing basis. I am overwhelmed with gratitude to be here where I am right now in my girlfriend's basement. <laughs> I'm the luckiest creature that ever lived. Ask your auntie. This week, we have two questions that came in. The first says, Dear auntie, I got a good deal on tri-tip. Any suggestions on how to cook it? I cook my tri-tips like most people cook a brisket. I start with a dry rub, which is a combination of brown sugar, salt, cumin, paprika, garlic salt, and a little mustard seed. You rub that in and you let it sit for at least three hours, preferably overnight. When I'm done, I throw the whole thing in aluminum foil and I drop it on the grill for anywhere between four and seven hours, depending on the size of it. When it's done and fall off the bone, I throw it in a 450 degree oven for about 20 minutes to get a nice little bit of char on it. That's how I do my tri-tips. The other one comes in and it says, do you have a really good chili recipe? And this is from one of our former guests, Xavier. So yes, I do. I chop a yellow onion and I saute that in a little bit of oil. I add one pound of beef or buffalo and one and saute it. When that's sauteed, you add one pound of white beans, pinto or navy beans. They all work well. 32 ounces of chopped tomatoes. I used canned. Two or three heads of smashed garlic. A cup of strong coffee. Two tablespoons chili powder. One tablespoon oregano. Half a teaspoon or half a tablespoon cumin two tablespoons salt, 16 ounces of water, and I simmer for three to four hours until all the beans are soft. You can also add in chipotle peppers if you want something a little spicier. So yes, if you have a question for Oscar Auntie, please send it to Auntie Vice at Fat Chicks on Top and we'll get it on the air. Hi, this is Auntie Vice from Fat Chicks on Top. If you like Fat Chicks and you are looking for other podcasts with great conversations, you might want to check out Chopping It Up with Ungayo, now on most streaming services. This has been an episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Fat Chicks on Top is produced and hosted by Auntie Vice. Audio production is by A Serious Production. You can find all information about Fat Chicks on Top at fatchicksontop.com and follow Auntie Vice at Auntie Vice on most social media.